Welcome to the Red Tree Pod, a project aimed at seeing how grace clarifies our otherwise confusing lives and attempts at reading the scriptures. I'm your host, Davis Johnson, and in just a few seconds, I'll be joined by my co-host, Chris Wachter, as every other week, we come to you to break down an Old Testament passage, a psalm, a portion of a New Testament letter, and my favorite part, the but what about section, where we look at a trickier part of scripture that seems to go against everything we talk about here on this podcast, but actually doesn't. We are glad to have you with us. Another day, another podcast. Chris, it's good to see you, my friend. Davis, good to be back. How are oh, you? I, I'm doing pretty well, man. Yeah, things good. things are good. I um, oh, let me adjust my mic here. While I'm doing that, why don't you tell me how you're doing? Yeah, doldrums of February for me. Doldrum. I don't know if that's a term or not. If I just coin that, or if people use that, but doldrums of February, my least favorite month of the year. Is so, it? Yeah, it's. Uh, it's a tease in Minnesota, you know, but nice, nice today, a little bit of a wet rain or cold rain rather, uh, to winter, which is nice. But I feel like those kind of things were are sparks and, and hints and maybe teases, but glimmers for me that, that, uh, spring, the spring of the gospel <laughs> is, <laughs> is around the, around the corner, sort of like, uh, in, in the prophecy of the old Testament, you could say, right. Uh, kind of giving a hope, uh, that, that better days are ahead. But uh, yes, yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at. And in the meantime, we watch videos that make fun of February. Yes. And we watch The Last of Us. You're watching The Last of Us? I'm caught up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Three of us in my family. So my Ooh. oldest daughter, my wife and I. Yeah. Doesn't seem like a younger kids show, I don't think. Definitely not. No. It's horror. I mean, yeah. it's pretty horror. Yeah. I've seen a lot of zombie flicks. This one is a particular flavor <laughs> and quite think. scary and engaging, yeah. but I'm yeah. Yeah, very much into it. It's a good yes. time. Right. Yeah, we are, we are doing well. Sorry for my mic hassles there. No um, but uh, yeah, some bright spots for February for us in, in addition yeah. to the last of us, which oddly has been a bright spot for us. We, we look forward to those Sunday cool. night viewings. Um, we also just got back from a marriage retreat. My wife, awesome. Emma and I got to speak at one and all of the fun of preparing for a talk on marriage somehow. I don't know if you experienced this with premarital and stuff, but you end up like fighting a little bit more. <laughs> I was going to make a joke about that, but yeah, basically that's the, uh, that's what happens, right? Uh, it's like part of the process of like, yeah. okay, we're going to argue about stuff as yeah. we're talking about talking about marriage, <laughs> talking about talking, what is that? Right. So, but now right. it was a good time. Very refreshing. Got to be up, uh, in the Wisconsin woods a little bit and cross country ski. And then in the midst of just talking about marriage in, in light of the gospel, it's, it's really easy to, to like most things in life, just do the thing rather than you know, yeah. think about it in light of, uh, who Jesus has said he is and all right. that he has. And, and when it comes to marriage, it's like, this is pretty close to the center of the target as he's th- as he's thought about this relationship. That has everything to do with him and, and him ultimately dying for us. So uh, just very encouraged uh, thinking on those topics. I uh, got to hear from one of our, uh, two of our elders and uh, the director of uh, Restoring Hope here as well. And, uh, and it was just really good. Love so it. Very encouraged. Uh, but that is not what we're, we're not talking about marriage today. Very little marriage in the passages today. Let's, let's move on. Let's, let's turn the page. <laughs> we got, uh, we're going to hang out in the book of Judges, everybody's favorite book. We actually have an intern here uh, who reads Judges Every Christmas Tide. That's her really? Christmas devotional. Yeah. <laughs> it, she says it really prepares her heart. Uh, I don't know. For, for just like, wow, I, we all yeah. need help here because this is the situation is bad. Because it's, it's very forward looking, right? It's <laughs> yeah. advent in that regard. It's very forward looking, so. making you yearn for brighter days. Yeah. Uh, and so, 
Yeah, it's it's the downward spiral book. I think I've heard it uh, referred to. Probably a commentary I read or maybe one of my old seminary profs or something, but I thought that's an apt uh, subtitle. Things just keep circling the drain and going further, further down, the further you get. For the judges, too. The judges right. just become, the savior figures become worse people as, <laughs> as the book goes on as well. Like, oh, We're getting saved from that guy? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think she's on to something with that. I, I might pick up the habit. So we'll be in Judges 7. We'll also be looking at Psalm 56. Uh, capping off First Thessalonians 4 before our, we turn to our but what about passage? And that is going to be Romans 13 where Paul quotes the law. That's an interesting thing. We got mm-hmm. to talk about that. If Paul's quoting the law, surely we are still under it. Look at mm-hmm. what he's doing there. So we got stuff to say about that. Before we do, uh, let's chat about Judges 7. So as you mentioned, a lot of, a lot of uh, the imagery of a spiral here is helpful. Uh, judges, you have multiple judges or deliverers who are raised up. They are called uh, by God to deliver Israel, God's people, uh, from some really bad situation. And um, the thing that is always interesting about this, and I think you might have been one who pointed this out early for me, is that the thing that turns God's head in the midst of uh, raising up a deliverer, in other words, what is getting God's attention in order for him to respond to the crappy situations that his people are in? It's never their moral righteousness. It's, in fact, the whole book is governed by that one line. You know the line. They called out to the Lord, right? Called upon the name of the Lord, right? Yeah, so they're, they're so. calling out to the Lord in the midst of them doing whatever is right in their own eyes, right? Oh, right, right? of course, you know, like yeah. the, That's mm-hmm. the, but yeah. the calling out but is that becomes is kind thing. of that key, yeah. They, it's when they call out that that uh, God hears. Right. It says God hears them and responds and sends a judge. So it's this cycle, uh, basically, this pattern in judges where that's the thing. It's You're right. It's not their moral anything It's uh, or anything that they have to bring at all. It's In fact, it's, qu- it's quite the opposite. It's in the face of the fact that they're like the worst. They keep getting, they keep getting worse and worshiping other gods and committing all kinds of unspeakable acts. It's a, it's a cornucopia of debauchery really is what is what it is. Um, Which is that, not going to be your memoir title. Cause that, but yeah. it's, it's a compelling title, but it means bad things. Cornucopia is a big word though. I cornucopia. Like yeah. <laughs> debauchery be the, yeah, the qualifier. <laughs> this is not your, what you want for your cornucopia, but, um, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a diverse thing is, is the idea, you know, that it's all kinds of sin. They're making up sins almost, you know, mm. it's just, it's the worst of things that it's that that God walks into, which is really cool it's based right. on their call, based on just saying, God help we're, we, we need you. We're toast. So. And so God raises up deliver. He intervenes, delivers them for whatever this problem is. And then for us readers, especially a first time reader in this book, it's like, okay, maybe now things are going to start to look better. You know, the progress from problem to climax of resolve. And we're, now we're in new territory and things are going to get better. But no, as you mentioned, it's a spiral. Things move from bad to worse. It seems like one might say from at least a big picture perspective of reading the Bible, that the thing that has gotten in the way of, of uh, people's ability to follow and know God has not been taken care of, even though this deliverer has taken out an enemy of God's people. There seems to be a more insidious enemy that has not been dealt with. And so uh, in the midst of thinking about that, we, we turn to Judges 7. Gideon has been raised up. He's one of the judges uh, in Judges 6. That's where we get all the fleece fun. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with that, he he's doubting God's call. I've I've actually had heard people I've, I've heard people say, you know, like I'd I'd be really nice to be able to do something like that. You know, I can't make a decision. I'd like to follow in Gideon's footsteps of putting out a fleece and praying, God, <laughs> if you're with me in this, make this wet in the morning and the ground around it dry. Uh, and then you know he wakes up, and that's true. And mm. the interesting thing about that, and what I always want to say whenever I hear, it'd be so nice to have something like this. 
is uh, Gideon doubts it, right? Like he's, he, he does this and then he's like, but, ah, man, maybe that was just weather. Right. <laughs> you know? So let me right. do it again. But this time the opposite, make the, the fleece dry and the rest of the ground yeah. wet. And- There's always a natural explanation. We can just, ah, but, you know, it's just science or right. whatever. Right. Right? There's right. an ex- explanation for this that, um, that we kind of uh, accredit it to rather than God actually working. So that happens today all the time. Certainly. So I I do think that there's definitely something better than what Gideon is trying to do with uh, getting God's attention with a fleece. But that was all Mm -hmm. chapter six. We're looking at chapter seven today. And one of the governing ideas here is God talking to Gideon, his deliverer, and saying to him, you have too many men. This is in verse two of chapter seven. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me saying, quote, my own strength has saved me. This is the idea that's going to repeat throughout chapter seven. Talk to us about what we're reading here in Genesis. Yeah, I, what I like about this story is, because we see this a lot in the Old Testament is, uh, it's basically, it's a blatant, it's one of the more blatant times that God says, I can't work when there's too much human strength. Like, I, I just, I can't, you know, it's almost like he, um, not, not that God's limited, but he's just in the face of too much flexing, you know, and too much of humans bringing something to the table. Uh, God's like, I need more weakness. And so he, he limits, he, 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 he winnows down the army, right. To, um, to a, a smaller number of, of men. And so it's just a really cool thing. It's sort of like Jericho, you know, earlier in the story where they march around the city and they just yell, they don't touch it. And, um, there's a lot of instances like that in the Bible where you do see this law grace kind of clash where this, you know, if, if they were able to touch Jericho, if they lifted a finger, you know, in, in order to it's something, even just, just to do something, there could be some credit taken. And I think, uh, and, Again, here in Judges 7, you see that there's even a rationale kind of given. So no one can say that it was because of my righteousness. No one can say it was because of what I brought that that this great salvation was wrought or this great army was pushed back. And so it's just the it's opposite of religion. It's opposite of what how we think the world spins. You know, God is always opposite in, in some capacity when it comes to this way of thinking than we are. And so he winnows it down. He works just a few people to show that it's by grace we're saved, uh, not by works. Yeah, and then we turn the turn the page a little bit on uh, our halfway down this chapter, and we find that Gideon has this dream, uh, or it's his friend's dream. And, he, and here's what he says. This is in verse 13. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. He says, I had a dream. Uh, a round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. And so in the midst of weakness being something that's demonstrated and put on display and God, again, just being one who is not that impressed or interested in what we are bringing to the table. In fact, uh, any place really in the Old Testament story where human achievement is being lauded or people are using the law uh, in a way that's saying, I'm, I'm doing so well. God should be pleased with me. Grace or what God's movement is going to look like towards people who are far from him is always glad to just kind of exit stage left and then wait for, like in Judges, things to go from bad to worse. And then the people are going to cry out and then God's going to show up and go, okay, in the midst of this weakness, now it's time for me to do what I want to do. And, and in this passage, you have a dream about bread rolling into a camp with such force that the, that the camp itself cannot stand. 
And uh, this bread is I always called- I love that dream. It's no, <laughs> <laughs> not a common one. I most don't have Tuesdays, it. Most Tuesdays. Yeah, most I Tuesdays, I have Tuesdays, the, yeah, the bread dream. Every Tuesday I dream that same thing. Oh, man. And I don't, the, the friend's response in hearing the dream says, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash. So he's looking at the deliverer that God has raised up and said, this bread is representative of a sword. Now, for, for our first time through reading Judges, this should raise eyebrows uh, as questions are raising in our mind. What the heck is this dream ultimately about? out and how do we make sense of this? This is just a weird detail that somebody from thousands of years ago wanted to include. And uh, it, upon first blush, it, it does seem that way. I, I think if we're using the New Testament to bring clarity to that which is muddy, though, this passage begins to sing. There are things that are going to be coming to the forefront that seem like background noise, uh, and the dream is definitely one of them, because I believe it's in John 6, you have Jesus saying, in the Old Testament, bread. Uh, this this is something that I'm going to look at and say, this is ultimately a, a small picture of me. Right. Bread that came down from heaven right. is actually, good. has everything to do with, with the bread that came down from heaven and me. I'm the one that you need to come and feed from. Uh, but even more than that, I, I love just the, the foolishness of the, the military victory. You have a sword that is a breadstick. I mean, I just picture the French Great baguette image. that kids fight with. And, you know, like at, you're at Olive Garden as a kid and you grab a breadstick and hit your brother. <laughs> and it's like, that's not going to win a military battle. And yet in this in this dream, you have victory coming from God ultimately as a sword of, of bread. And uh, it's not too much of a stretch to say, what is what is God doing ultimately against this ultimate enemy that we have? Um, his victory is one that comes through broken bread and wine. The, the thing that is ultimately separating us from God, this enemy of sin, is overcome by bread that is broken for us, by wine that is poured out. It rolls into camp uh, of our enemies with such a force that the tent is overturned and it collapses. Mm. And for, for anyone uh, today who's just feeling like, man, I'm just, I can't get a handle on life. I can't get a... Uh, I even walking with God for a long time and I've been trying to do all the things. And, um, I do think judges seven has a word for us that just says, Hey, let's get back to the basics. The foolishness of the cross is that in the midst of your great enemies, receive this bread for you. It rolls in with such a force that your enemies cannot withstand. Mm-hmm. Weakness is your greatest strength in this equation. And so believe, behold, take uh, hold of, of this bread that has been broken for you. That's great. Yeah, I know I'm kind of stating the obvious here, but a bread that can do that to a bunch of different, you know, tents and buildings and to an an opposing army is not the kind of bread we can bake with our hands. You know, that's definitely a bread that only God can bake and only the only his baking hands can make and, and make that powerful and strong. So I think there's you know, a helpful kind of nuance there to us uh, as well. The, the point is not to mimic that or to celebrate us and in any capacity in what we've done. It's it's completely a, a gift of God. So, And the imagery of the table where we get bread and wine uh, in our churches is one of, it is one of open hands. It's one not of closed fists saying, look what I've done with and uh, in, in trying to conquer my enemies. It's one of, of help me, Lord. <laughs> And, uh, and that help is one that, that uh, is actually violent towards enemies. Uh, the very end of the chapter, you have the heads of the, the military leaders um, being taken off of their bodies. So you have a decapitation of, of enemies. And upon first blush, again, this looks quite violent. And, um, and yet, what does this communicate? It is a permanent death to the enemy camp. And uh, Ephesians 6 says that our battle actually is not against 
certain individuals. It's not against people groups. It's not against anyone. Actually, at the end of the day, it's against spiritual forces of darkness. And God mm. rolls into that camp with a with a loaf of bread and a cup of wine, and he decapitates these enemies that stand between us and him. Mm. And that is good news for, for our souls. Super good. And another thing too with that is that God doesn't you know, if we see the enemies as types of our sin and our problems and death and separation from God, but let's just take sin as an example, like is the big thing. God has not come to give our, our sins a paper cut or to bruise it, the, to bruise our sin's elbow, but to completely decapitate it, you know? So whenever we feel like we're distanced from God or that we, you know, maybe would love to believe in him a little bit more strongly or feel like our faith is weak. Like these stories exist for the sake of our encouragement, you know, as well that God has fought our battles, but not just fought them kind of, but as you were saying, in a very holistic and complete and decisive manner, like our sin has been completely decapitated and run through. Um, that's encouraging when we sin, right? So, because we still sin, <laughs> to know that that. Well, you do. Yeah, right. I always yeah, forget to qualify that. <laughs> but, well, good. Uh, Let's turn the yeah. page to Psalm fifty-six. Uh, so here's a psalm that we have. Actually, it's it's quite fitting as we looked at Judges seven. We have a lot of enemy talk. So David's crying out, "Be merciful to me, my God, for my enemies are hot in pursuit all day long. They press their attack. My adversaries pursue me all day long, and the pride many are attacking me." When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, and I'm not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? All day long, they twist my words. All their schemes are for my ruin. They conspire, they lurk, they watch my steps, hoping to take my life. Because of their wickedness, do not let them escape. In your anger, God, bring the nations down. Record my misery, list my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? Then my enemies will turn back when I call for help. By this, I will know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God, I trust and am not afraid. What can man do to me? I am under vows to you, my God. I will present my thank offerings to you, for you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. 13 verses mm. there in Psalm 56. Where do you want to go with this? Great. Maybe hone in on verse nine. I, what I like about um, this verse where it says, my enemies will turn back when I call for help is um, a very judge in a very judge's fashion, right? We were talking about this, how the thing that turns our enemies back, uh, our spiritual enemies ultimately um, is a call for help, a call to heaven. It's, uh, it's this very passive and open-handed thing. And so even if we feel like we are fighting or trying to slay our sin, this is the backdrop. This is what's happening behind the curtains is just a call for help in God, whether it's through our proactiveness or whether it's through our passiveness, God is the one who responds to, um, not to, not to ex exertions of our strength and our, uh, moral acuity, but, uh, instead just our calls for, uh, for help or, uh, like the Bible says many times elsewhere, just trust or, or belief. That's basically what it means by that is, is just, we're, we're trusting God that he can do what, what we, what we can't. And so, um, I think right after that in, uh, in verse nine, maybe it's uh, 10 or actually right before rather, he says, um, record my misery. Are they not in your scroll? Which is an interesting thing. I, what we like to, um, when we read the Psalms and many have done this before us is to see these as songs of Jesus as well. And, and not just the prayers of David as a human, but how, how are these prophetic? And I think in that you see Jesus then saying, record my misery, God, are they not in your scroll? As though God is noting the sufferings of his son as this particular thing that will turn back the enemies as this particular uh, decisive 
sort of dividing point of history where when that happens, it will be written down, it'll be marked, it'll be seen by God. And through that, God will work. Uh, through that, God will answer prayers in the highest of sense. Uh, he, he, he will come to console and comfort and save and heal. And, and all those things we see fill the pages of, of the Psalms, I think, are, are come to fruition on the cross when Jesus is gasping for breath uh, and, and basically saying what David says here is, uh, look, look, look to me, Father, and note what I'm doing. Uh, I, I love those I'm saving. I love those you sent me to save. Um, save them through my blood right now. And so that's how the Psalms like really shine even fresh kind of poetic light onto what's happening at Golgotha. I appreciate that perspective because it is it is really easy to read uh, Psalms or anywhere else in the Bible for that matter and, and re- come across a verse, something like verse eight, and just think, oh, do I, should I be crying more so that God might even move in my life? Then that might sound ridiculous, but that is where a lot of our hearts go as we read something like this. Because again, we're reading, record my misery, list my tears on your scroll. It's really easy to think that that my first means me. And, and there are times in life where it's like, yeah, I absolutely need God to be the one who's recording my tears. There are real tears that are flowing down in the midst of misery. Um, and I can think of many situations where I know that that will be of encouragement. But it's of greater encouragement to see Jesus as the one who's saying these words first, because in his tears, there are power. In his suffering, there is salvation. And he's the one who's come along to say, this is the real answer to our great problems, so that we know when we cry, God is the one who hears us because he said, I'm never going to leave you. I'm, I'm always going to be there to hear your cries now. Uh, the other last thing I'll say is uh, verse three is one that I've come back to a lot in the midst of, you know, a night. Uh, you wake up at two in the morning and you're just, you know, filled with anxiety. It says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Um, and again, this is something that uh, is, is right on the heels of enemy talk. And in the 21st century, it's really easy to misplace, just like it was in the first century, the location of our enemy. And to think, well, it certainly means a physical enemy who's hot in pursuit. And in, I think it's a little easier in the 21st century to say, I don't have a ton of those unless I'm driving. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this is never actually intended to be about physical enemies, though David had that. This was always meant to drive a layer beneath the surface about our spiritual enemies who are hot in pursuit. They are pressing their attack as the day is long, and they are taking pride in how they are attacking you. Um, and all of these, these things that keep us up at night, they are all derivative to a decapitated enemy, like we already saw in Judges 7. And so when we hear that verse 3, when I'm afraid I put my trust in you, there's a, there, it can often feel like, how do I even do that? How do I put my trust in you other than just like repeat a mantra? Um, Christian theology would teach that's actually not going to, the reason that it hasn't done anything is because just repeating, I put my trust in you, I put my trust in you, I put my trust in you, probably isn't going to get you anywhere because there's no power in that. Where's the power? The power is in Jesus and re, retelling the story. And so places like Judges 7 are, are of help where we can go, I put my trust in the one who rolled bread into the camp of my enemies and decapitated them, put them to flight ended them so that they no longer ultimately have power over me. Uh, in the midst of, of fears in the middle of the night, especially, you know, uh, your daughter, uh, you're, you're afraid of them not making it through the night. That's been a common fear in parenting for me. Uh, this is helpful to see that Jesus has decapitated death and that ultimately my fears are derivative of that. And I, I can take great trust in him as I see him as the giver of the bread. So uh, with that in mind, let's turn the page to 1 Thessalonians 4. We're in verses 13 to 18. 
Um, this is where we're going to hear about um, not being like the rest of mankind in our grief who have no hope because uh, though death is a part of all of uh, everyone's experiences, you know, 100% of us are going to die, newsflash. Uh, but in this life, we also encounter many funerals. Um, and Paul is going to say, I don't want you to grieve as if you have no hope, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And then he's going to get into some rapture theology, isn't he, Chris? He, he is. Where, it's where it comes from anyway. Okay. Uh, yeah, this is the passage of scripture where uh, those who believe in a, in a rapture or a, or a catching up in the sky uh, to be with Jesus in heaven um, is a part of what's going to happen when he, when he comes back, you know, in, on, on some level, whether visible or invisible, uh, that, that certain Christians have believed in for, uh, for some time now. You and I do not share that theology, but this is where it comes from. At least from. not today. At least not today, yeah, unless you've changed <laughs> last time I've, I've talked. But um, we're not going to really talk about that too much today, I think, but this is the idea of being caught up in the air um, is, uh, is, is where it comes from. Uh, but I think it can be pretty uh, more reasonably explained by just being caught up with him who's descending. Um, it, it is a much more orthodox position, even historically, uh, biblically, obviously, but it, the historical position of the church has been that Christ is coming back to earth and, and to set up his kingdom here. And so the, the catching up in the air to meet him is to meet him on his descent, uh, not talking about our ascent. Uh, and so even, even that I really like, because even at the very end, God is going to say in a very final sense, I always come to you. You never come to me. I always descend to where you are because I love you. I always run down the hill. I always come out of heaven uh, to, to earth. And this is one final way I'm going to say that. Uh, even at the very end, we're not going up, uh, so to speak. Yeah, even though we, we, we may spend time with him in heaven, our souls might in, in this kind of uh, state between death and, and resurrection, um, it'll, it'll ultimately be God coming down to us uh, to be our final rescuer and to fight our final battles. And so I like it for that reason. So, um, but yeah, but that aside, is that, do you have something else on that or, uh, anything else? Yeah. For first Thessalonians four here, I think the, yeah. the last, uh, a verse and a half says, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore encourage one another with these words. Um, it's, it's easy to just zip past verses like this. And the one above where he said, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Um, the, noticing the simplicity of these statements and saying that this is what I want to encourage you with. This is the thing that is going to bring you from faith to faith, from one degree of glory to the next. What is that? Very simple gospel message. And he's been saying it over and over again to the Thessalonians uh, in, in different ways, for sure. But but don't move past this. You know, if somebody's going to, in a small group, confess something that they're struggling with, don't move past Paul's example of here of just straight out, straight out saying, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God is going to bring you through this with Jesus, uh, whatever the situation. And so I just want to encourage you that. I think it was Bonhoeffer who said the, the Christ in my brother or sister is, is stronger than the Christ in me. Mm. And uh, when I read Paul saying this Love to that. me, uh, I feel that, right? I, I can say to myself, I believe that Jesus died and rose again. But when I, when I have you tell me that or when I, when I see it on paper here from the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago, uh, it's stronger than mm. the Christ that's in me. And so I, I do think the don't move past the simplicity. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It is the power of God. It's the foolishness of bread rolling into a camp. Mm. So it's mm. good. Well, lastly, we are uh, going to end in Romans 13. This is our but what about passage. And if you're a, a new listener, uh, what we're doing with this section is to say, 
But aren't there passages that just disagree with everything you guys are talking about and this movement from old to new, this movement from a lot of grace, uh, this movement from us trying to get to God and failing and God ultimately moving to us? Aren't there passages that say something different? And uh, this is one that often comes up in the midst of these conversations. And I actually even remember in seminary uh, that uh, I had a professor, I, I loved my seminary experience overall, but there were just some things where I go, oh, I, I think I landed a different camp on, on how I might go about interpreting that. And this was often a place where, as especially these points of emphasis of moving from, from old to new. And one of the chief ways that that's pointed out in the scriptures is a movement from being under the law to being under grace. And that really being the, the thing that changes everything. Uh, this verse is often thrown back as, as like a tennis serve of like, well, what do you do with this? And the, the reason why is it's in Romans 13, kind of verses 8 to 10 and beyond. Um, it, it's Paul restating the law. So he's actually quoting the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. Um, and so a lot of people just say, well, Paul quotes it in the New Testament, so clearly there's got to be some meaning of us being under it. Um, I'm excited to hear what you, you got to say about that, Chris. Before you do, I I always just kind of I, I, I not to be rude, but I, I do kind of laugh because the the context of of Paul quoting the law is him talking about love and how much greater love is than do nots and how much greater mercy is than sacrifice mm-hmm. to quote somewhere else mm-hmm. in the in the scriptures right right um, and so uh, I I think you have Jesus pointing this out even in his earthly ministry that that love itself is so much greater than all of the commands that come along. And the great problem that God is trying to solve is our lovelessness. Mm. And so commands reveal that, but they only come with do's and don'ts. Love itself, especially in the in the midst of the the covenant or the commandments that he's quoting here, um, these things are just scratching the surface of love. In other words, love overwhelms, definitely fulfills these things, but overwhelms them. It doesn't just say, you shall not murder. Love says, don't, you don't only don't kill somebody, but you yourself die for that person. Mm. And that's, that's why law itself can't hold a candle to grace because it's just transforming in a way that do's and don'ts cannot. Mm. And so it's not that we don't love the law. It's not that we don't like, hey, we don't like it. It's that love itself overwhelms and offers so much more when it comes to your own relationship with God uh, because he first loved us, as we've talked about extensively on this mm. podcast in terms of the order of operations. Uh, but it just swallows up the commands. It fulfills them and it just goes, oh, I'm not even thinking about that anymore. That's not, of course, don't murder. But I'm saying more. More than that, right? You're gonna you're gonna die for your neighbor. Why? Because Jesus died for you. So yeah, t- talk to me though. I want to hear your thoughts here on Romans. No, 13. I love that. Just to second that, yeah, I think he uses the um, the language of like a debt pain or a self lowering love. That you know, if you really think about what the law kind of did on its best days, but only partially, or or just couldn't really do. It was that, <laughs> you know, it was, yeah, at best kind of a, a box checking thing that turned people inward. Am I doing enough? Or did I, did I just barely cross the line enough today so I can kind of check out the rest of the day, that kind of thing. And so that's what, that's what selfish, prideful sinners do, right? With laws, we, it, is it, are we doing just enough or not? And so what the gospel does is takes it much further. It turns us away from ourselves because we're saved by grace. And it it actually creates love in us because Christ lives within us. So that, that's a very different thing. And so, um, in fact, the psalm we just looked at talked about, I think, um, or sorry, the uh, first Thessalonians 4 talked about this, how, be, how we are in Christ, where when we die in Christ, we are the dead in Christ, which is a very intimate, uh, beautiful, hopeful image for those who are going to die, which is 
all of us. Uh, and so, but here we, we have this idea in, in life now, we have the same hope that we are in the loving one, in the one who's loved us, like, like you were saying. So I would say that, and then maybe just kind of underline the idea of fulfill, because if you look at the idea of fulfillment in the Bible, things that are fulfilled in the new, the things that pointed to that fulfillment in the old were never really achieving that thing that fulfills it, uh, if that makes sense. So like, you know, if it's referring to Jesus, when he comes, he fulfills the things that only partially and in a whispering kind of sense uh, at best, uh, kind of like Gideon, right? Or like the bread dream or uh, like anything we've talked about in this podcast that, that are referential to him in a type, typological sense. They're not one-to-ones. And so if you underline the idea of fulfill, then Paul must be thinking the same way about, about Christian love in the New Testament is it's not the same as in the old. It's not, he's not bringing us back under the conditional do this and then you will live or love perfectly or die. Uh, he, we know that by re- reading the book of Romans in context, but even if we didn't have that, we know that based off of Jesus's teachings. We know that based on the, the word fulfillment, even right here in the passage that Christ's debt pain love, Christ going into debt for us is what shapes this new kind of love that we have freedom now to walk in because of the Spirit's work within us and that we're not under that law of conditionalized spirituality anymore. So we don't have to fear. Thanks for joining us. You can find us online at www.redtreegrace.com. Audio production for the podcast is provided to us by Brendan Wickstrom and website support via Nolan Bauer. And if you like what you heard, please do drop us a rating or a review on iTunes. Or don't. Either way, we will see you next time on The Red Tree Pod.